0: Welcome to Broad Eye, the podcast that explores knowledge gaps in ophthalmology and eye care. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Broad Eye podcast. My name is Sean Maloney and I'm here with my co-host and good friend, Dr. Bruno Fernandez. Bruno, how are you today? I'm doing good today, Sean. How's it going? Ah, I can't complain, can't complain. Um, I'd say we have a VIP guest today and we're happy to introduce him and uh, I think we're going to you know, dive into quite a few areas that we've never touched on the podcast before. So, with us today, we have Dr. Robert Greenberg, who is the current chairman and CEO of the Alfred Mann Foundation, and he's the former CEO of Second Sight, uh, and Second Sight is probably best known for the Argus II retinal implants, and we're going to dive into that a little bit. So, Dr. Greenberg, thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you, Sean. Good to uh, good to be here with uh, you and Bruno. Perfect. Thanks for having me.
0: So. I wanted to kick it off with a bit of an unusual question. Um, And uh, I love giving you a bit of a heads up in this one. And I was hoping you can comment on um, Alfred Mann's top 10 list, because I've heard you talk about that elsewhere.
1: Yeah. So, you know, this this goes back and it, you know, dates me a little bit but back when David Letterman used to have a uh, top 10 list on his show. uh, And, you know, it was more of a comedy bit, of course, but, uh, but Al used to have, his top 10 list of what makes a, uh, what makes a great company. Uh, Al, Al man was a serial entrepreneur, had created many, uh, many different, uh, companies starting back in the 1950s in aerospace and then moving into medical devices in the 1960s and really up until, uh, up until, uh, his death at 90 years old, uh, a few years ago. But, um, his top 10 list of what made a great company, um, started with, uh, capital was number one. And then number two was capital. And then number three was capital. So he went on like this for a bit. Uh, so, I mean, really the kind of the message, the take home message was that the, the essential ingredient, uh, and it seems obvious on one level, um, that you need capital, but, um, the uh it, it really is what you know the only way you can fail is if you run out of, run out of money that's kind of the it was kind of the part of the message and then the second uh you know once you got down to i think number five uh was people so and it was really the capital that enabled you to recruit the people and uh it was the people that were going to make the difference and at the very bottom of the list uh the number 10 was the product and, you know, I, I, think the purpose of his top 10 list is that most people, when they think about starting a company, focus on the product, uh, as the, uh, as the main objective, as the kind of number one, um, number one thing. And it's actually, uh, and Al's mind was at the bottom of the list because, uh, you could have the, the best product, but if you have, uh, the wrong people or don't have enough capital. It's not going to make it uh, and vice versa. I mean, you could have a horrible product, but if you have the capital and good people, you can make the product better and you can uh, make it make it a success. Uh, and then he had a second top 10 list, which was what makes a good product. And on that one, the very bottom of the list was the idea. And so, you know, I, this is one that he liked to talk about and at academic institutions in particular, where it's all about the idea Um it, the idea is actually the bottom uh, of the list for what makes a good product because, you know, there are things like, you know, what are the cost of goods? Is it manufacturable? Is it uh, reliable? Is it uh, does it really meet the needs of the patient? Does it? Anyway, it goes on and there are a million other things. His point there was that the idea is really just the beginning, and uh, the value creation happens along the way in translating that idea. From uh, just a concept into something real uh, that can actually benefit patients. And that's and that's really what we do at, at the Alman Foundation now, um, which is a nonprofit research foundation in Los Angeles. Um, we, we do that translational work where we take uh, ideas for medical products and, uh, and make them real to the point where they can be um, then commercialized by companies and distributed to
2: patients. And on that path from taking an idea and transforming it into a product that actually has commercial viability, uh, a lot of things can happen. So do you, do you think that there is a lot of intellectual property within uh, universities that is uh, uh, just not going anywhere, like things that could be useful to the society, but for one reason or another uh, are not moving forward?
1: yeah i think there there are a ton of great ideas uh at uh, academic institutions and and really the the foundation was uh was founded with that in mind uh how do we unlock you know al al was interested in, in unlocking um this uh, great talent and knowledge and ideas and getting them off the blackboard and onto you know into patients uh cuz i mean they most of what Al did throughout his career was medical devices. And, and that's, that also, that's also what we focus on at the foundation. Um, and it's a hard problem. Uh, and there are lots of reasons why it's a hard problem. It's something that um, that we have special expertise at the foundation to try to overcome these challenges. But, you know, their challenges, you mentioned, Bruno IP, you know, often just getting the license from the university uh, can, uh, can take a long time. Uh, one of the One of the initiatives uh, that Al um, started to try to address that that problem is he actually created an institute at USC with the idea uh, of being a mini foundation um, on campus with a pre-negotiated IP license with the university so that that you wouldn't have that year-long or sometimes two-years-long process of just licensing the IP out of the university before you can even start the project. Um, So he wanted to try to fast track that piece of it. Um, And, uh, and there's been some uh, some projects that have come out of that, come out of that program. So, you know, so there's, there's that challenge. Um, There's the challenge of uh, priorities uh, at a university, you know, as someone who's not yet tenured uh, is not going to be rewarded for, uh, Patents—they won't be rewarded for um, licensing technology to a company and commercializing the technology. You know, they're going to be rewarded for papers, and they're going to be rewarded for grant funds coming into the university. And so, the incentive system is not set up in most universities, and there are some exceptions. There's some universities that have gotten sort of hip to the idea that uh, that they can do more good if they if they shift those priorities. Um, but, so I think there's those challenges too. And I, you know, fortunately there are, there are, um, there are some people at, at, universities that do have a focus of, uh, wanting to, to help, uh, help people and get their ideas and products out there. So, you know, it's one of the things we try to do with the foundation is work with those folks and, uh, and try to help them, uh, help them, uh, translate that work into something real.
0: I think it's. Uh, I mean, I could have a whole conversation about <laughs> IP challenging, IP licensing challenges and stuff. And I gotta imagine that um, you might have an easier time having a, you know, the, the foundation having the success that it's had um, going to these universities and saying, look at the kind of companies that we've built and spun off. Uh, you know, with having secured some of this IP versus. You know, if I had some, you know, a starting a company and I wanted to go to the university, knock on their door, and their tech transfer office said, "Hey, I want to license this IP," <laughs> that might turn into a, you know, a negotiation that goes nowhere. But um, yeah, no, I think I think that's a fair yeah.
1: point. I think both, you know, certainly both our history and um and and the fact that we have capital behind, uh, you know, back to the earlier top ten list, um, the fact that we have, you know, the foundation was started with uh, an initial endowment by Alman with some shares of um, Paysetter stock, was one of the, it was his first medical device company. And uh, the organization has been self-sufficient since 1985. Um, we've created over $7 billion in market cap uh, worth of companies over those years. And it's you know, through royalties and through equity that we've held in those companies that we've been able to sustain the, the nonprofit organization with no, uh, no outside funding. Um, or or minimal outside funding. I mean, we've gotten a few grants over the years and um, and some small donations over the years, but but effectively it's been self-sufficient uh, that entire
0: time. So you've been alluding to that, you're alluding to that uh, first company, and maybe that's a good segue into my next question is, um, are there any, you know, lessons learned, I guess, from some of the uh, early successes? I mean, there's been a number of noteworthy successes uh, that the foundation has been behind. I'm um, just wondering if there's any, you know learnings that you have taken and then applied to uh, to second sight. I mean, you know, second sight has been founded uh, founded quite a while ago. But I'm wondering if any of those early wins, I guess, uh, helped inform the uh, second sight in any way, especially you know during the development of the Argus II. Yeah, n- no
1: doubt, um, and it was really a large part of the reason I I chose to join the foundation. I met Al Man when I was working as a medical officer. Uh, at the FDA and he convinced me to come uh, check out what they were doing at the foundation. And it seemed like such a unique set of resources, Um, both the infrastructure and the people that were there. You know, the infrastructure had everything that a medical device company would have, uh, quality regulatory manufacturing, uh, clean rooms but also have things that a university would have things like a scanning electron microscope and a CT scanner. So, you know, a lot, lots of, you know, great toys, uh, which, you know, someone with an engineering background, uh, seemed like it was going to be a lot of fun and, uh, and really productive, but, um, you know, we founded, uh, Alan, I founded, uh, second Sight and I'd been working at the foundation for about a year, uh, at that time. And, you know, I think, I don't, back in grad school at, at Johns Hopkins, where I, where I did my MD, PhD, I had been working on the science behind a retinal prosthesis or an artificial retina, something that would, that would electronically restore vision to blind patients. And it was really just the science behind it that I was able to do at that time. And it did seem like the foundation was a place where we might be able to make it real. Um, and part of that l- the logic there was the foundation had developed a cochlear implant. Which was an electronic device that restored hearing to the deaf, and that was really the um, kind of the original uh, motivation uh, for um, for the Argus and for Second Sight was the success of the cochlear implant and restoring hearing to the deaf. It seemed like we ought to be able to do the same thing for vision, and so we were able to leverage all of the learnings um, from that cochlear the Cochlear implant days and all of the knowledge at the foundation that had been gained, you know, at that point it was maybe uh 20, 20 something years. Um, you know, today it's 40 something years, but um at that point, you know, 20 plus years of of experience and knowledge in creating implants, um, you know, probably the most important thing besides the capital and the people was this uh experience in putting electronics in the body. Uh, the body is salt water. So think of an ocean, uh, you know, imagine taking your television and throwing it in the ocean and having it still work. Um, and Oh, by the way, we're also going to miniaturize it to the size of a, uh, of a, uh, of a dime, um, uh, U S dime or, um, you know, or a, um, you know, maybe the size of a, uh, of a large pill, but, um, so, so pretty tough engineering challenges, but it was the, you know, I think the experience of the foundation in doing that and, you know, how do you protect electronics? What kind of materials can you use to do that? How do you um, how do you build something in a reproducible way where you can uh, build more than one of them? Um, and uh, so all I think a, a lot of those learnings, um, you know, when there were, at the time, there were maybe a dozen academic groups. And, you know, I, had, I was uh, at Johns Hopkins uh, working on this. There were groups all over the world trying to create a, a retinal prosthesis at the time. It had become kind of a popular uh, idea. And when we started Second Sight uh, in 98, it was, I think, only it was just a few years later. And I guess it was in 2002 when we did our, our first human subject. And we actually modified the cochlear implant um as a way to get into humans quickly and, and we learned we learned a ton uh, with those early experiments where we were able to restore uh some rudimentary vision um with a uh, a very crude device that only had 16 electrodes but it was uh, a way that you know we, it's the way we were able to get to patients uh you know it was, it was years later that we were able to get to patients with the Argus 2 which was our first commercial product but uh the having having access to the cochlear implant um, from Advanced Bionics, which was one of the companies that the foundation had spun off, um, you know, was just a, a tremendous advantage.
2: And so, I mean, you mentioned those uh, uh, early days of the retinal implants, like during your graduate studies uh, at John Hopkins. Uh, you like I mean, i'm just curious to know how it was uh, uh to work with those patients volunteers that uh, were receiving those implants and were able to see for the first time i'd uh, like to share a little bit about that must have been very special uh,
1: yeah absolutely and, and, and you know for i think for all of our certainly uh, certainly restoring vision to a blind patient for the first time is uh yes yeah, probably the most rewarding thing that i've done in my career but i think anytime uh, that we work with patients and solve a uh, significant medical issue. It's the reason we do this. It's the reason um, all of us who work at the foundation are uh, motivated to uh, to help these patients and their families. Uh, you know, the very first time, uh, this was the Argus 1, this was the modified cochlear implant I mentioned. Uh, the very first time we implanted a patient with that device uh, at Johns Hopkins, the uh, we had... Um, so these devices, uh, the idea was that you have a, a video camera and you wirelessly transmit the signal from the video camera to an implant, uh, that's inside the eye, uh, on the back of the eye called the retina. Uh, these patients with, uh, these are patients with retinitis pigmentosa and the retina is like a, a, a birthday cake or a multi-layer cake. And one of the layers is dead. And we're, we're bypassing that layer by electrically stimulating, uh, within a, a, a grid of electrodes. So similar to the pixels on your monitor. And so the, the concept was that maybe we could restore vision this way. And so we implanted a patient with a four by four grid. Uh, this was a, the modified cochlear implant the patient at RP was completely blind. And we didn't even have a pair of glasses with a video camera yet. We, all we had was a, uh, just a handheld video camera. And so the patient was after the surgery, um, uh, the uh, patient uh, was able We let the patient heal for a couple of weeks. And we brought the patient back in and uh, he was holding this video camera and we with a projector, shined the letter L on the, uh, on the wall. And uh, we had probably, you know, people were very interested was the first time it had been done. There were maybe 20, 20 people in the room watching. And uh, we asked them, you know, do you see anything? And, he starts shaking his head uh and you could feel the energy just drop in the room you know this had been months you know maybe years in, the, in planning actually uh to get to this point point. and he starts shaking his head we are like ah, it didn't work he doesn't see anything and then he says all i see and he draws in space a line that goes up and down like this and one that goes to the right so he drew an l um he said the well, uh, So is <laughs> uh and we said what is what is it and he said i, I don't know it just looks like an l
2: <laughs> and everybody's <laughs> like yes yes <laughs>
1: oh so he you know he didn't uh it's so, like you know you, there was this incredible roller coaster where we went from this what seemed like a letdown to elation in the room and cheering and um uh, so uh you know I, I i'm not sure what i don't think i ever went back and asked them. you know what, what did you expect to see the uh, you know I guess he, you know, he didn't really know what to expect, but he uh, thought we would show him more than just an L initially. But um, so anyway, that that was the uh, the first time that we turned on the uh, the Argus one and, and really began. That was a really critical moment because it was at that point that we knew um, we knew we were onto something. We knew that was kind of the reason for doing the Argus one was uh, to prove that uh, that it, that this could work and, um, and that the concept was uh, was valid.
0: No, and that's, uh, you know, that must have been a, um, like you said, a highlight, I guess, in your, in your career and in your life. It's certainly uh, just hearing you explain that almost kind of sends, sends shivers down my spine. As a patient with RP, uh, I could maybe somewhat relate to uh, how that would feel. Um, I was hoping to shift gears a little bit. You mentioned the FDA. Um, can you just maybe give a brief overview of what you, you were doing at the FDA and any maybe lessons learned that you then took to the Alman Foundation?
1: Yeah, so I was actually working in the um, the general surgery, uh, neuro- it was neurology and general surgical division, um, and uh, I was reviewing uh, applications for medical devices. That was the, it was in one of the medical device, it um, uh, was part of the medical device departments, um, and I was a reviewer. I was just kind of a staff reviewer, uh, was looking at uh, you know evaluating uh, different applications and and I I've learned a ton. Um, I uh, you know I think I might have even um, ended up there permanently if there wasn't a, uh, a hiring freeze. Um, I was there on a temporary basis, and uh, when I met Al Man, and uh, you know it was one of these situations where the government was on continuing resolution, and so they had a uh, a government wide um, hiring freeze uh, during that time but um, probably the, you know, I, I think the thing I learned the most is, you know, I'll never forget the very first day when I joined uh, the FDA, they, you know, showed, they brought me to my office and showed me my desk. And uh, there was a stack of applications that was probably, I don't know, two, over two feet high. Uh, this was when everything was done on paper. And um, I asked, I said, you know, is that, you know, this uh, this year's worth of uh, uh, stuff to review, and they said no. This is this week's uh, reviews. So I think one of the things that I learned was kind of the impossibility of um, the workload that the people, can, and an appreciation of the workload that the FDA has, and you know they it, it was impossible to go through. You know this was maybe. I don't know twenty thousand pages uh, worth of material, and it, it's just physically impossible to go through it in the level of detail that you'd like to in that short a period of time. And so um, there's a heavy reliance on the companies to, you know, to 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 help them and uh, and to work with them and to kind of get get them the essential information that they need to make their, to make the decision, uh, in at a, at a reasonable time. I think the, you know, the companies, you know, I would, uh, I would see companies that struggled to get approval, uh, not because their product wasn't good, but because the application you know, took, just took a lot of time to sort of weed through and find the essential information. And so by, um, I think by summarizing, um, the important information, uh, you know, with all the backup that, uh, if there are questions that they can turn to, um, allowed us to uh, to get products through the uh, the FDA process uh, quicker. And I think also recognition. I think working there was a recognition that you know, I think there's often a us versus them mentality where uh, some companies feel like the FDA is there to stop them from uh, making progress. And uh, you know that was not my experience at the FDA and my experience there was that they, they are trying to keep, um, uh, keep people safe. Um, And there is a little bit of a sense that, uh, that some companies uh, may, may be fast and loose, but I think for the, for the most part, uh, I really had a sense of FDA that they were really trying to help get products to market and help um, ultimately help patients, you know, balanced by this responsibility of, of, of uh of keeping uh keeping patients safe so it was a it was a, it was a great experience and uh it's, it's one that i think has certainly helped me as i've kind of gone back on the other side of the uh the other side of the equation and uh and working with uh with the regulatory folks at fda to get approvals for these products
2: uh circling back a bit to the retinal implants argos and, and second site which i believe was the company uh, uh, created to commercialize those products uh please correct me if i'm wrong uh, uh-huh. with uh so when exactly was the company created and uh when what, what was the main goal uh, when it was founded was just to commercialize Argus, uh, argos or or it has a, a greater mission to uh behind it
1: Yeah. So, so the company, so Alman and I, and and a couple other people founded uh, the company in 1998. Um, And uh, the, uh, and, and I ran the company all the way through, uh, through the IPO, which happened in 2014. Um, The mission for Second Sight was really to restore uh, vision to, uh, to blind patients generally our uh the strategy that i took uh, because of uh, work i had done in graduate school at johns hopkins uh, was to initially uh develop um develop the argus which was developed at the company um, and you know first this argus one with a modified cochlear implant to test the idea and uh, then the argus two the first commercial product that we actually got got fda approval for and got medicare to uh, To pay for Medicare, uh, this was approved for retinitis pigmentosa, and uh, Medicare uh, was reimbursing one hundred and fifty thousand um, dollars per implant for the uh, for the device. So, um, you know, I think you know, great success from a, a clinical standpoint. Uh, you know, patients were able to um, to do things that you know, completely blind patients were able to do things that obviously were impossible. Uh, we're able to, uh, to get uh, some rudimentary uh, vision back. And um, the, uh, then the goal, we, knew, we always knew that uh, uh, RP was a relatively uh, uncommon uh, disease, and uh, we wanted to ultimately help all blind patients. And so the next step was to modify the Argus implant and to implant it um, in the visual cortex or in the brain bypassing the eye because there were a lot of people that were blinded by accidents or um, uh, other, uh, other diseases that damage the retina and uh, things like uh, diabetes that, uh, that blind patients uh, and, and can't benefit from, a, um, from, an, Ar- from an Argus. So, uh, so we began working on, right around the time of the IPO, we began working on a, uh, a direct brain implant and um, the we implanted the first few of those. Uh, uh, once we kind of implanted the first few of those, and and they they went well, and uh, and that clinical trial was kind of off and running. I decided to come back to uh, the Alman Foundation, and so I've been back uh, running the Alman Foundation that we that we spun out the company originally from. And um, so uh, that's kind of the short
0: a short history, uh, lots of twists and turns along the way, as you can imagine. I imagine there'll be more twists and turns as the, the cortical implant uh, develops. And um, maybe we can touch on, uh, just this is just a, a question I have uh, for my own personal interest. Um, how did the conversations go? Like you mentioned that Medicare or these private insurers were um, covering up to $150,000 for the cost of these devices uh which are obviously enormously expensive in the uh, you know the whole R&D behind these things is enormously expensive yeah. um so how did those conversations like how do you approach that conversation with the insurers and asking them to cover that and uh is that something i guess you're going to have to do uh down the road as well with the cortical implants yeah, absolutely. So yeah, it's something the company will have to face.
1: Uh, and you know, my involvement today is really just as one of the uh, principal investigators on the, the clinical trial. Um, the uh, I, I think the um, there were a few keys uh, in getting reimbursement, both of you. And we were able to get reimbursement uh, from the European regulators uh, as well as uh, Medicare in the US and, and a number of private insurers. And the conversation... It was um, was not as hard as I. I mean, it, it was hard. Some of them were hard, and some of them weren't. Um, the most compelling argument and the thing that ultimately uh, won the day in most cases was the, you know, not surprisingly, the func- the functional benefit. You know, they wanted to. The insurers wanted to know. Well, what, you know, what can what can people do with this device that they couldn't do before? And, um, you know, and that was what really at the end of the day, what they were willing to pay for. So, you know, we started off with clinical tests um, just in the clinic showing, showing the level of vision that we were able to restore. But to the FDA's credit, before giving us approval, the FDA also forced us to come up with additional tests that showed a real world benefit. So, um, you know, things like, uh, you know, can uh, someone find a, uh, find a, a cup a spoon and knife on the table um, without uh, you know having to sort of feel around uh, for it can they take out the trash can they um, and um, and so it, it actually ended up taking us a couple of years more to get the FDA approval but in those couple of years we worked with the low vision community to to sort of ascertain of you know what would be meaningful what would be uh, um, how could we measure what real-world impact the Argus, uh, Argus had? And that, that turned out to be helpful. You know, At the time, we were frustrated that, that it was going to delay our approvals by a couple of years, but it probably accelerated our ability to get reimbursement by a couple of years. So in the end, I think it ended up saving us time, um, despite the fact that we were frustrated. In fact, we had applied to get FDA approval. We had, all, we had the full packet. We had com- completed the clinical study, we thought. And uh, that was when the FDA threw us this uh, curveball, saying, we really want you to develop a, uh, a real world met, uh, measure and then test it in patients. And that was at the moment, that was devastating. we, you know, that uh, you know, was almost, it could have been a company having not had the capital, it could have been a, cl- a company killing moment um, because it was going to take a couple more years to, uh, to get the FDA approval than we had, than we had planned for. Uh, but in the end, I think it was a, uh,
2: uh, the FDA did us a favor. Uh, you mentioned that uh, like using a cortical implant instead of a, a retinal implant has some advantages by including more patients uh, into it and not relying on uh, 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 some preservation of the anatomy of the eye. Uh, can you run us through like the details of it because I keep imagining, you know, like you drew the hole through your brain, and through your skull, like I'm going to put some wires in your brain. You know, like I don't mean, no need to yeah, get yeah. too graphic, but I wonder if our audience is kind of curious about how that can be done.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it's very similar to the Argus. And in fact, it's uh, in many ways, it's a similar surgery uh, in terms of both time and the device itself. So outside, conceptually, it's the same idea. So uh, there's still a, a pair of glasses that has a video camera that wirelessly transmits to the implant. And now instead of putting the implant in the eye, we're laying this electrode array that, that for the Argus and the retina used to just lay on the surface of the retina, which is visually mapped. So you know it's mapped just like pixels on your monitor and space. Turns out the brain is also mapped that way, not quite as neatly. And it, it, it's something that makes it a little bit more complicated to uh, program the device initially, but uh, it's a similar idea where the uh implant has two pieces it has the uh, a little uh if you think of it, it's almost like a large button uh, cell uh, battery so there's sort of this um, uh battery that uh, sits uh, uh in a little um, a little cut in the skull and then there's the electrode array uh there's a there's a small uh hole in the skull uh, and this electrode array lays on the surface uh, the surface of the brain uh, and then uh, and then things are, are closed back up and uh, you can't uh, even tell uh, uh, that someone uh, would have this unless they're wearing special glasses. You can, you can tell from the glasses, but even the glasses, the latest pair of glasses that was just approved looks like a normal pair of glasses. Um, so you might not even, you, would, you probably wouldn't even know unless you knew to look for the, uh, the camera. It's almost like spy, spy glasses with a hidden camera.
0: So it's, uh, you
1: know, the surgery takes maybe an hour and a half. It's an outpatient surgery. Um, so far the patients have, uh, they, we have been having them stay overnight, but uh, at some point I imagine they'll go home the same day, just like the Argus um, and the initial Argus patients stayed, stayed overnight. And then ultimately uh, it became an outpatient procedure where they went home the same day.
0: Um, I know we're going to be running short on time here soon. So maybe we just, uh, we could each fire another question ask you before we wrap up if, if that's all right. Um, I, wanted to, I wanted to touch back on the intellectual property because it's, it's an area of interest that I have. Um, I wanted to know if you have any advice for researchers, uh, so ac- academics who think that they might have um, you know, intellectual property with commercial potential. Is there any advice that you would have um, you know, for these individuals? How would they you know, go about trying to get that commercialized? Is it worth it, et cetera, et cetera?
1: Yeah, so I think the the question of is it worth it is a more complicated one. But the, let me start with just how to go about it. I think the most universities have tech transfer offices um, that can help the professors um, navigate the process of uh, of applying for patents. And I think it's you know one of the important things that all those tech transfer offices will say are um, you know, see them before you publish or before you talk about your ideas publicly, uh, because that gives them the chance to uh, to file um, file patents, particularly internationally. Uh, in the U.S., you have a year after you disclose it, but uh, internationally, you have to file before you disclose it. So, so it is important to see that you know talk to those offices uh, before you give a presentation that you think might have commercial potential. And, and I think it is important to file. Um, File IP. It's uh, you know it's something. It's it's a key element of what we do at the foundation. Uh, we have well over three hundred patents uh, issued, and um, it it uh, the patents themselves are not so important, but what they allow is they uh, allow venture capital and others to feel comfortable investing in uh, in the idea, and without the IP protection uh, they could invest the money and bring something to market and someone could, you know, come in right behind them and, um, and sort of take the market away from them. So it, the thing that's been, uh, and the reason why we have a full-time at the foundation, we have a full-time, um, IP attorney and a full-time patent agent. We're actually recruiting for a second patent agent right now. If anyone listening, it happens to be a patent agent, but, um, the, uh, uh, it's it, it's just really important in being able to raise capital. You know, back to the earlier thing, uh, the patents themselves tend not to be that critical, um, but um, the uh, they they it's what they enable. And so I, I would encourage uh, people if they are interested in some in commercializing something, it's very hard to do that without some IP protection, um, and uh, the tech transfer offices are the best place to uh, to learn about how to do that.
2: So, Dr. Greenwood, I also heard that besides the retinal implants, of course, among a billion things that you're involved on, uh, you mentioned that uh, Alzheimer's disease is, uh, is something that you would like personally to address. Uh, uh, there's no cure right now, even though it's being uh, heavily studied. Uh, do you think that this is a solvable problem? And uh, how do you think we could go about that? Like, can we use an implantable device uh, uh, to do so?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think it's it's one that that I have a personal interest in. I think it's something that uh, is a tremendous problem in our society. Um, we have people living longer uh, who would otherwise be living um, productive uh, lives that are getting cut short by Alzheimer's, and it's devastating to families that uh, get uh, impacted by it you know, whether, whether or not, uh, and there are some people looking at neuromodulation as an example, uh, uh, you can neuromodulation play a role in Alzheimer's perhaps, uh, there's some people looking into that. Um, you know, there are other, there are other sort of drug, uh, type approaches and it's, it's, I don't know what the answer is today. Um, but it's, it certainly fits into our foundation's mission of a unmet medical need and something that um, is having a widespread uh, human impact that um, if, um, you know, if something looks promising, it's something that we would certainly uh, be interested in uh, in helping uh, helping facilitate a, a solution for. So I, I certainly don't have the answer to it today. Um, but it's it's an important problem that that we have an interest in if someone uh, has has ideas that may may help with Alzheimer's. I think it's one of the the most important uh, medical challenges that we have today as a uh, side, and there are lots of of them, obviously. There are uh, many, many things, uh, many medical issues to to focus on, But but it's an important one that we haven't really figured out yet.
0: Well, we hope that uh, ultimately uh, tackling Alzheimer's looks like um, tackling, you know, uh, retinal degeneration and what you do with the Argus too, and that it boiled down to um, an engineering problem. Ultimately, uh, challenging as it was, um, hopefully that's the space we can find ourselves in with uh, with Alzheimer's in the in the years ahead. So, uh, Dr. Greenberg, I want to take the opportunity to thank you for for joining us on the show today. It's uh, truly a pleasure to to speak with you. Uh, I know um, I can speak for, for both Bruno and I, just uh, I think the audience is going to enjoy this episode, uh, hopefully as much as, as we did. So I um, just want to thank you for for joining us today. The pleasure is mine. Thank you, Sean and Bruno. Thank
2: great, you. Great, great